Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. I would start maybe chapter 3. I don't know. We're going to try and get through all of it today, so buckle up. Uh, there's a theme that goes throughout all Scripture. And, and it, specifically, it's spelled out a lot when you get to the book of 1 Corinthians. But there's this theme that has to do with the phrase, one another, meaning you and that person, and me and you, and you and them, us. It's us. And it says that we should be honest with one another. In Exodus, it says that we shouldn't kill one another. That usually damages the relationship significantly. It says you shouldn't steal from one another. Uh, it says you shouldn't be coarse. You should actually, in the phrase, love one another comes up. And that's something that runs through the course of Scripture. And it talks about, mainly, what we'll be talking about is, yes, how we treat those people outside of the church matters, but mainly when Paul talks about the one another, when the Scripture talks about one another, it's talking about how the body of Christ deal with each other. Because for the last couple years, and probably even before that, if you haven't noticed, the sense of unity that's been around in the church has gone away. Christians, their favorite target is usually other Christians. We call it friendly fire. And so how the church deals and interacts and treats one another is vitally important. The book of Leviticus is a book of laws on how the people of Israel are going to live with one another. Uh, yes, it affects how they live with people outside of the nation of Israel, but mainly it's this is how you're supposed to live with one another. That's what the laws were about. And then as you see the story of Scripture go through, so you have the law saying, this is how you're supposed to treat one another. Then you get to the prophets and they're going, ah, you're not doing what we had said. You're supposed to care for one another. And then you get to the teachings of Jesus and he goes like, guys, didn't you get it? And so he exemplifies how we're supposed to treat one another. And then you come to the teachings of Paul and the writings of Paul and most of Paul's letters are, knock it off. This is not how you're supposed to be treating one another. And so you have this theme of one another and a unifying uh, thing throughout Scripture because how you and I treat one another affects the impact of the gospel. If someone outside of the church comes in and goes, they're a bunch of jerks to one another. All they do is gossip and slander and, and sue and, and, you know, all that stuff. It doesn't really go well for the testimony of the church. Because we, the church, lately have divided on just about anything and everything. And then when we divide, we ridicule. Because you're different from me. I follow a different way than you do. And so you're less than me. And then after the ridicule comes the, the post, right? You post on your Facebook whatever you say. And then that just divides even more. And then after you, you post, you isolate. Because heaven forbid you ever hear an opinion contrary to yours. That would really mess with your opinion, right? It wouldn't make your opinion stronger. It would make yours worse. And so, no, I don't want to... Uh, it's the equivalent of my son Judah putting his hands over his ears when I tell him to put his clothes away. He doesn't want to hear it, and so he isolates. And so we isolate. We post, we ridicule, we isolate, and then we condemn, right? Because those people don't agree with everything the same way I agree with everything. They are whatever, wherever you send them in your deepest parts of your heart, whether they're on an island, whether you excommunicate them, uh, this is how it divides the church. 
And if we know anything from history, divided things don't really last very long. And so what we need to realize is that you and I and you and them and you and him and you and her are all in this thing together. We have the same goals. We have the same Savior. We're on the same side. We're on the same team. And how we interact with each other matters. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the middle of, or we're going to start a series that will take us all the way up till Advent. Christmas is coming. How's your shopping? Okay, but this series will take us all the way to Advent. And we're going to be talking with how, about how we do life together, how we live with one another. And so today, I want us to take a look at 1 Corinthians. No, we're not going to teach all of it, but there's some, there's some things in here that Paul does to, to tell this church to say, hey, get along. This isn't how family's supposed to treat each other. We used to take road trips uh, as a family. We had a big blue van. It was a 1979 Ford Econo line, and we took that thing everywhere. And my brothers and sister, I have an oldest sister. Her name's Robin. I have a brother named Bob who's next. Uh, he lives in Texas. Robin lives in Southern California. And then my brother Scott, who lives a few miles up in Linwood. And then me. And we would all be in the back playing on our way up before seatbelts were a thing, right? And so we'd be in the back, you know, we'd be pulling up my dad's ski boat. We'd be heading up to Lake Tahoe and we'd be fighting or the other three would be fighting. I was perfect. And, uh, and my mom would stay back and she, like literally dad stopped the car and just said, get along. You're not supposed to be doing with this. If you guys can't get along, I'll turn this car around. It was all an empty threat. He was just as excited to get to Lake Tahoe than we were. So, but it was the same thing. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians and says, hey, get along. Y'all are messed up. In the church in Corinth, there was divisions. And so Paul starts, the whole book of Corinthians is metaphor after metaphor about how we're supposed to be doing life together. What I want us to see here is I'm going to take a look at a couple of them, depending on how we do with time. I'm going to take a look at a couple of them and see like, hey, the, what Paul says about the Corinthian church is the same thing that can be said about us. We can take the lessons from the Corinthian church and apply them to our church. Okay, so before we get going, there's some background. And if you've been here for more than a week, you know I love background. So it's about to get nerd time. So take off your other hat. Put on your nerd hat, and we're going to be talking about it. So Paul is writing this letter of First and Second Corinthians to the church in Corinth. Now, historically, there's about five letters that go back and forth from the Corinthian church to Paul. Now, we can only get enough to make two of them. And so what you see is a piecemeal together historically between as much as we can find about the correspondence from Paul to Corinth. We have two of them, but there's bits and pieces of five letters in these two ones. So just put that in your Bible trivia thing, okay? What's happening in Corinth is they're a bunch of misfits. They're the weird ones. They're not doing well. And so Paul writes these, this first letter, and then they write back with more questions. Paul, what do we do about this? Paul, what do we do about this? And what you see is you can kind of read through Corinthians and go, oh, he's addressing this question. It's not random. He's answering something. It's like a little pen pal exchange. I imagine an email being about a thread about that long. This is what Paul is doing. There's divisiveness at the root of the church in Corinth. 
and what they were divided mainly over, one of the first things that Paul addresses is that they were captivated by who they were following. They had various teachers come in and out of Corinth, and they defined themselves and their value and the value of another based upon who they were listening to. One way to value them is by who you followed. Some boasted, and you see this in Corinthians, that they belonged to Paul, meaning that they followed Paul and his teachings, and when Paul planted the church, that's their dude. They're Paul. Other people said, no, 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 no. Paul's great. We belong to Apollos. Apollos is better. And it's not Apollo from Rocky. This is a different guy. Apollos came after Paul. Paul planted Apollos was just a great teacher. And then after that, others said, no, 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 we follow Cephas. Cephas is a, is a Greek name for Peter. We follow Peter. He was there before Paul and before Apollos, so we're better. And then the church started to divide over opinions. I can't imagine something like that ever happening in the church today, right? Totally weird that we would divide over opinions about anything. So this is foreign to us, so let's try and see if we can do it. So Paul, in the first chunk of his letter, goes after this a number of different ways. He says, look guys, you're using this value system that doesn't match up with the gospel. You're using a value system of this age. And if you read through the first couple chapters of Corinthians, he uses the phrase human wisdom. And all human wisdom does is divide the church. It attaches value onto human things that doesn't really give, that's not what God is looking for when it comes to value. In the first century, there were these street philosophers that would go around and they would stand on the corners of the street and they would give their philosophy. All really what they would do is just comment. And so you'd walk by and they'd make a comment. And then all these other people would get around them and go, oh, you are so wise. And then across the street would be another person commenting the exact opposite. And you would have these two competing philosophies. So this is what was happening in the church. Each one of them would gather followers and they would argue each, with each other on Facebook posts and nothing really changes except you get really, really mad. And Paul says, really? We're going to argue about this? This doesn't match up with anything. And so Paul uses these metaphors to begin to get at the divisiveness of the church. And he begins to build an argument that runs the entire way to the end of Corinthians, where he starts talking about how you and I form one body. But before he gets to the result, he has to identify the problems. And so he uses the metaphor. The first one he uses in, in, chap in chapter 5, or I'm sorry, chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 9, he starts talking that you and I and he and Apollos are merely workers. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, aren't, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the, as the Lord Jesus Christ assigned to each. The word servants there is the important word we need to look at. Servants means this. All Paul is saying is that he and Apollos and Peter are those who wait on tables. They're nothing, back then, waiting on tables was not a profession that people tried to get. It was not a well-paying profession. 
Usually the ones who were called servants or workers were the slaves in the world. So all Paul is saying is, look, I'm just a slave here. Stop elevating these leaders to the point where, where you think that we're something special. We're not. We're workers. We're just delivering the food. We're not the actual chef. We're, we're serving the tables. In verse 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to their labor, for, for we are God's servants working together. You are a God's field and God's building. So the first thing that we see is Paul saying, we're workers in a garden. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. God's the one who did all the work. So imagine this. You're, you walk, you're walking into, like, let's say, the Arboretum. Okay? I'm pointing that way because it's that way. Or picture in your head someplace that is manicured and beautiful. All right? Whether it's your yard, Jeff, or, or your yard over here. Whatever it is, think of this place that is just awesome. All right? Now... What if you walked into this place and you have done all of this work and everyone comes in and goes, wow, and then they go, this must be some special rake that you're using in order to make this look good. And so you have a bunch of people over here saying, the only reason this looks great is because of that rake. That is one awesome rake. And then you have another bunch of people over here looking at a shovel and going, nah, the rake's nothing. It's all about the shovel. The shovel is the one who makes it special. And then you have the rakers and the shovel heads over here, and they're fighting over which one is the best tool. Do you see the problem with this? Is the tool the one that made the garden special? No. What's the special part? The gardener. This is what Paul is addressing in his letter. Look, you're gathering around rakes, and you're gathering around shovels. And you're saying it's the rake and the shovel, and it's neither. You're missing the point because it's about the gardener. Meanwhile, Jesus is in the back going, I'm the one who gave that person the gifts. I'm the one who gave that person the gifts. And they're all pointing back to me. All they're doing is moving around manure, and they're making things grow, or they're making things prepared to grow. But I'm the one who brings growth. So you have this church that's dividing over tools, essentially. And they're missing the hands of the master. And I think it's an accurate picture of the church today in our time because we tend to elevate people in various places. We tend to elevate people and we tend to elevate opinions and theologies to the point in which we split. And now we're arguing about the theology. We're arguing about the opinion. We're arguing about the post instead of focusing on the one who brings the growth. And Paul says, look, your arguments, your positions, your opinions are distracting from the larger picture of what Jesus is doing. What you are arguing over is foolish. It's foolish to argue over shovels and rakes when the gardener is standing right in your midst. That's not the way we do things. If we're going to get along with one another, we'll need we'll need to know where we all stand. And where do we stand? We are tools in the gardener's hands. No one is better than the other. 
That's the first way Paul addresses this. Get over this idea that you're better than the other person based upon what you do for the kingdom. We're all in the same boat. The, lo- the ground is all very level at the foot of the cross. The next metaphor he gets to is we are builders who obsess over the foundation of the building. Yeah, I know you can look in history and churches didn't have buildings back then. They were most likely meant in homes or parks or town squares. Or if you were Lydia and Philippi, you met over by the water hiding from everybody. But what they are familiar with here, and this is why Paul talks about it, is there were temples. So watch what Paul does in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, if you've ever built anything, it's only the building and structure that you have is only as good as your foundation. Think of the most solid place in your house. It's only solid because of the foundation that's under your house. By God's grace, Paul says, I laid a foundation. And the foundation he's talking about is Jesus. Look, I came and gave you the foundation of Christ. This is what you build upon. I laid a foundation, he continues, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been, that has been laid. That is the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of the builder will become visible. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work has been done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, this passage is kind of scary, right? There's a warning there. It's been horribly mistreated and and misunderstood. But when you look at this section as the part and the entire flow through Corinthians, what you begin to see is a deeper meaning. Paul built the church on the foundation of Jesus. A message of wholeness, a message of peace to the entire person, body, soul, spirit, that only Jesus can bring. A message of salvation from hell, eternity in heaven. Though it might sound foolish, Paul says in the very beginning of Corinthians, we follow this foolish philosophy that says Jesus is the center of everything that we're doing. Jesus is the center of the church in which I planted there in Corinth. The true center of the church should always be centered on the hope of Jesus. If that's the center, then the building will last. When things blow against it, when storms come, if Jesus is the foundation, it'll stand. If Jesus is not the foundation, then your foundation is already crumbling. Following Jesus will always draw one another towards each other in a self-sacrificial model of love. Why? Because that's the way Jesus modeled us to live. And when we follow Jesus in the church, when we follow Jesus first in our lives, we are building upon a foundation that is here for another person, and then we are stronger together. These buildings that we're making, Paul talks about materials, and the materials he's saying is the materials that keep focusing on Jesus being at the center of your lives, at the center of your building. These things like self-sacrificial love, 
how we treat one another, looking at the other person as Christ would see them, looking through Jesus' eyes, looking out for one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, being honest with one another. This is how you build with valuable resources that make your foundation better, okay? So we watched the Lego movie the other night. Here's what I've come up with. This has nothing to do with it, okay? When you build on Christ, y'all know who have built Legos, the Duplos that come at the end of the, the Lego movie, these things are the greatest foundations to build on. Why? They're flat and they're level and you can put them down on things. And as my son Caleb learned last night, when you have a firm foundation, you can start stacking things super high as long as they fit. And so, but you can go higher and higher and higher and pretty soon because you have a firm foundation you can get this thing pretty dang high and it can be taller than my two-foot son Caleb is. Why? Foundation. It sits right there. What Paul is saying, when we build on Christ, the foundation is firm. So you can do things like, oh, there's a senior pastor transition. It's okay. Jesus is in it. Uh, it's okay that we're going through a pandemic. Why? Jesus is at the foundation. Everything works out. Oh, it's weird. We had a really wonky election and everyone's still angry at each other. It's okay. Jesus is still the foundation. We can put things on and survive. Why? I said it before. Come on, say it back to me. Jesus is the foundation. You guys are paying attention. This is great stuff. But when we start building on other things, let's say we build our church. And our whole reason our church is here is so that, I don't even know where that thing came from. The whole reason the church is here, and we start building, and we want to make the tower, but we start with one of these things, okay? What if our whole church is based upon an opinion about something else? Nothing to do with Jesus, okay? Let's say our church is built upon a political party. I don't know of anyone who builds on that. And so we start adding things to it. And then things happen and, and you still build and, and things come along. It's not really that firm a foundation, right? It starts to crumble. And then you get higher. Oh, there it goes. I thought it was. Doesn't take long to reveal the source and the stability of your life. This is what Paul's getting at. Look, we are builders. Who, who obsess over the foundation of the church. We're not going to gather around an opinion. We're not going to gather around what the political party you might affiliate with. We're not going to gather around, oh, you read this news source or you read that news source. We're not going to gather around whether you believe everyone should be vaccinated or you have a free choice. That's not why we're here. Why are we here? Jesus, if we gather around all the other opinions, shifting sand, Jesus calls it, and when you build on that, the storm comes, your foundation will be revealed. And because you built on wood, hay, and straw, it's going to burn up. But if you build, as Paul says, with gold and with valuable materials such as Christ, you're going to last. This is what Paul is trying to teach the people. You can't gather around things that are going to give your building instability. My dad was a building contractor for 40-something years. I grew up sweeping because I sucked at construction. I grew up sweeping everything. 
One of the things my dad taught me for a while was that the foundation is what takes the longest to develop inside of your building project. That's why you go around downtown. They seem to be in the ground digging holes and putting pylons in for like a year, right? But as soon as the foundation is secure, they fly with that building. It just goes because the foundation is right. Every county, every city has different ways of doing construction. For those of you who have been in construction, you're like, yeah, it's frustrating. And what happens is if you decide you're going to skimp on your foundation, you're going to bribe some inspectors, you're going to do it your way, you're going to ignore the safety protocols, your building is not going to last because they make these laws, they make these codes in order for the building to survive whatever calamity might come. And so where we were building a lot in Yorba Linda, they outlawed wood roofs, as you would do if you're in a place where there's a lot of wildfires, right? Just seems smart. But when a contractor would skimp and go with a wood roof, when the wildfire comes through and burns the place down, the contractor would be held liable. This is what Paul was talking about. He says, when it comes, you're going to be held liable for the foundation on which you build. You will suffer loss. He says, this is how you build, and when you do it wrong, you might be penalized for doing it wrong, and you will suffer loss. How you build your life and the foundation of your life is key on how your life will go. It's key on how you will serve one another. Because if your foundation is Christ, you can deal with one another's stuff a lot easier. You get my drift? Because you can always go back into what does Jesus say about this. And what you'll find is there's some things that come that Jesus goes, that has no place on my building. This piece, be it gossip, slander, has no place to go in this building. So this piece doesn't fit. Or we should have used this one. This piece doesn't, doesn't belong with these other pieces. So how you construct your life will determine how you treat one another. Is Jesus the center of your life? Or is there some other agenda that has to do with the center of your life? Now watch what Paul does. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? The, the you here is plural, so it should, it should you know, for our southern friends, it should say y'all. Okay, you comfortable with that? Okay, okay, Tennessee is going good, all right. Y'all are God's temple, and, and, that's, and that God's spirit dwells in you. Do you not know this? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Hello. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, this is a bit astonishing. Paul says, you are a temple. Remember who Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to a group of misfits. Here's some things that were going on in the, the Corinthian church that you'll figure out as you do Corinthians in your quiet time, okay? There's people getting drunk at communion, which is weird, right? Because you only serve those little tiny things. So how many times are they going up there? No, but they're getting drunk at communion, so they're overindulging. And when they're getting drunk, that means they're taking the Lord's Supper and somebody else isn't. So Paul gives very strong warnings about communion. There are people who are suing each other in the church. How awkward is that? Let's say you're suing Caroline, Dan. How awkward is this that you're here and there's no media? It doesn't work well. How's that do for the foundation of the church? Now there's a division in it. 
So Paul says, knock it off. Stop doing that. There is a man in the church in Corinth who is sleeping with his stepmom. Okay? This is the kind of church that Paul then says, you're a temple. What? Do you see everything that's going on here? These people are bitterly divided. And Paul spends chapters after this talking about the divisions that they're in. But Paul still has the audacity to say, your lives, y'all together, are the temple of the Lord. Now, when this was written, there was already a temple. There was the, it's, it's called second temple. The first temple was what Solomon built back in Kings and, and, and that area in, in the scriptures. You can read about it in your other quiet time, but you can read about there in the Old Testament. That was destroyed in 586 when Babylon came through. After that, we kind of went over it a few weeks ago, Zerubbabel went and rebuilt the temple in about 500. And so they, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt Jerusalem. And after that, there was a king named Herod, another Herod, that decided he was going to soup the thing up. And so he made it gorgeous, right? And this temple was awesome. And the temple matters for the Jewish people because that's where they believe God lived. God's presence was in the temple. So when the temple is destroyed, God's presence is destroyed and it doesn't work well. But Paul goes a bit further and says, yeah, yeah, there, there's there are those temples. And then there's the temple of Artemis and the temple of Zeus and all those places. But you individually you y'all together and individually are the temple of god you group of 60 in corinth are a temple and you can't <laughs> you guys who can't get along are the temple so if there's the first temple of solomon second temple is what they called it because they needed a catchy name so they called it second temple and now you are the third temple now this has a hard time sticking for them and so, but it's another warning for all of us, right? Be careful how you build the temple. Watch what you're building. Because there's two ways to go about building. There are those who look at the church as something that we only do on Sundays. It's an institution to them. And so you come to church. But that's not true theologically. You are the church. The church isn't this building because, you know, tomorrow night there's probably a concert here. But this, you, individually, coming together is the church. When you leave here, you are still the church. You are God's temple. When we come together, there's value. There's value because we come together and we encourage one another to be stronger and to build a bigger foundation. There are some who say on the other end that the church is just me and my podcast, right? And so they go off and they have church by themselves in a podcast in a room all by themselves. Is that good? Sure is. Does it cheapen the idea of church? Absolutely. There are times when you do things on your own. Perfect. It's called a quiet time. But, there, but what Paul is getting at here is the church is what comes together. The one and others come together and they form the church. Both of these extremes are wrong. When God's people gather, the Spirit is there with them. The Spirit is with you when you leave here. But Paul says in chapter 6, we individually make up parts of the temple. We miss out when you're not here. When you fail to bring your Lego piece to the church, we're missing you. So we're glad you're back. You bring a valuable piece to the foundation of what Jesus is building. However, when we look at this whole thing at the church as optional, Paul basically says that's a destructive mentality that will do nothing but destroy anything you build on. You cheapen it. Then Paul says, if you tear down this temple, 
if this piece starts to gossip and slander, it's going to destroy the whole thing. So be careful how you build means be careful how you interact with one another. We're all on the same team. We need each other. So he says, hey, look, it's like a field and we're just the workers. Who's the center of it all? Jesus. It's like a building. We're building on something, but what's the foundation? Jesus, be careful how you build. And then in verses 18 through 23, Paul says this phrase, all belong to Christ. He keeps going. Look in verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. You think you're so smarty pants? You're missing it. Again, Paul's not being nice in this letter. We like to think he's being nice and beautiful when he gets to the love chapter. That's a, that's a tongue lashing, if anything, because they're not being loving. They're not caring for one another. Remember, Paul leads off with the statement, it's foolishness to build on a foundation of Jesus. It's foolishness to follow the cross, but it's God's wisdom. So it's going against everything we know. He keeps going. He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And then Paul lands on this argument. So let no one boast about the human leaders. For all things are yours. The phrase, all things are yours, is something that a philosoph those philosophy cats that stood on the corner would say. They would say, if you follow their philosophical teachings, then everything will be yours. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about their opinions that give you everything. It's not about this philosophy or that leader or that stance or that activist thingy. It's not that. That doesn't give you anything. What gives you everything is Christ, whether it's Paul or Apollos in verse 22, Cephas or Peter, or the world or, or life or death or the, present future, uh, or the present or the future, all belong to you. And then watch this. Y'all belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. You see what he did there? We're all on the same team. We're all on the same level. We belong to Jesus, every single one of you. There is no one that's more important. So Paul says this, stop boasting about who you follow. Stop making these petty, divisive things the issues. It's through Christ and in God that all things are yours, not in your own petty theology, not in your own opinion, not in the news headline that you just read before you came in, not in what someone else says about what's going on in this world. Everything is yours, and that comes from Christ. That's the foundation that we're on. Shovels and rakes don't matter. The gardener matters. Don't argue over the little things. Why do we, ar why do we argue about them? Because we want to be right. We want to put ourselves as more important. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. It's not about you. It's about what I'm doing. In Jesus, everything, life, death, future, past, the whole shebang is yours. And then if you flip forward in your Bibles, like 10 chapters, and go, maybe not 10, I'm bad at math, and then go to chapter 12, this is where Paul begins to land his argument, right? He says this, just as the body, the one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. 
Now, now this is Paul being silly. This is a sense of humor. If your foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason become less of the body. If the whole body were an eye, like Mike Wisnowski, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body was an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every single one of them, as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now go back to, down to the bottom, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We divide over positions. I love the picture that Paul gives, right? There's this little ear walking around saying, I'm out of here, and so your ear falls off. This is Paul trying to be funny. Maybe it didn't work, okay? Or your eye decides to remove itself, or your hand says, I want to be a foot. I'm out of here. It doesn't work that way. What happens to your body when that happens? Terrible things. I'm not a doctor, not any means, but that's not good. This passage begins to make more sense when you start to see how Paul leads up to it. He's saying that we're all in this together. You have gifts that I don't have. And in order to make this foundation of Christ beautiful, we have to interlock our hands and our pieces together in order that we can build this beautiful building called church together. And as we come together, and not divisive, not slandering, not gossiping, it works. The moment we start arguing over position and gifting and these petty things that divide us, it collapses. I was looking for a, an illustration to do this, and Jen suggested this. So here we go. Uh, how many of you ever make cookies? Yes. Okay. I, I make them when you cut the dough off of the thing and stick it on there. Then you, then you take a spoon of dough and eat it, and then you cut off the other one, right? That's the best way to do it. Okay. You have butter. You have egg. Vanilla. What else do we put in cookies? Sugar. Yes. Chocolate chips. Raisins? No. Okay? You have all of these things that come together. Now, would you ever eat a stick of butter on its own? No. Did someone nod their head yes? Jordan, really? Fried butter at the fair, maybe, yeah? And then you get carted off, okay? Yeah, so a, a spoonful of sugar, yes, it helps the medicine go down, but it's not as good as when it's all mixed in together, right? What? Chocolate chips by its by, yes, we go through a lot of those, okay? But when you put them together in cookie form, and then you bake them, and then they come out, and all of those flavors start melding together, isn't it a lot better than by itself? You can't really dip chocolate chips in milk as good as you can a whole cookie, right? This is what Paul's getting at. We need one another. So here's some questions for you, and I'm going long, and I'm sorry, Dylan, you can yell at me tomorrow. A question for you as we ponder this, as we ponder the one another's. How do you view the church? This is God's building, okay? How do you view yourself? Is it optional? 
Is the church some kind of consumer product? I used to think that. And so I'd go to church based on who's teaching or what song was being played or what was the worship leader. And so I'd jump here, I'd jump there, I'd go there. I would never really commit to one. And what was I doing there? I was cheapening the church because I was just bouncing around. In that mind, we think the church is about us and nobody else. And then we miss what God is doing. That attitude brings division. And Paul says, don't do that. How you treat somebody else's house. So now we're talking about the temple being you and I. How we treat somebody else's temple is how you treat them. If someone were to come over and as a guest broke everything, they, they finger painted all over the walls and then they came back to you and said, sorry, it wasn't personal. What would you do? <laughs> yeah, right. How we treat each other matters in the church. How else am I supposed to take that when you're gossiping and slandering? It's personal. You can't take it. And it divides the church. How you treat God's house is also how you treat him. Not saying that, every ga- that, that the gathering is the ultimate and end to everything. I wouldn't say that this is what church is. But in some places, the lack of reverence for church cheapens the church. So what would it be like if we began to see the gathering of God's temple as something that can change the world, as something that can bring the lost to know him, as something that brings the salvation of Jesus Christ, which we all desire to the streets in which we walk. What would happen if we started to view church like that? Come, church, so you can meet the foundation of the church. Come, so you can meet Jesus. Next question. How do you view yourself in the church? Do you delight in being a shovel? Do you delight in being a rake? Do you delight in your shovelhood or your rakehood? This whole deal is never about what anyone up front is doing. The whole deal is about what Jesus is doing. It all belongs to God. What happens when we see ourselves as tools in the hands of the gardener is bringing about a more better and stronger kingdom. How do you see yourself in the church? Honestly, if you're not a church person, welcome. Uh, you, uh, and if you haven't been around church in your entire life, then you have a much cleaner slate than I do. But in recent days, there's been so much confusion about what the church stands for. And then when that happens, there's confusion about who Jesus actually is and then what the church is. And with all of this confusion going around, have you ever thought that you might be here to settle some people's confusion? When you live into the purpose of for which you were built, you're starting to build on the foundation and you are displaying Jesus in your life to the people who don't understand what Christianity is all about. You were built to be used by God. You were made to get shoveling. You were made to be a rake, to be used to glorify not yourself and how smart you are, but to glorify no one else besides what God is doing through you. We're to be used to serve one another. And so that comes first from a knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. We have a lot to do over the, from, to fix what has happened in this past 19 months and counting. The church has been divided, it's been beat up, it's been bloodied, but it's still the best thing that God has going It's still the plan. There's no plan B when it comes to how we're supposed to represent Jesus to the world around us. It's the church. 
So let's serve one another accordingly. How we treat one another matters. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've given us this messy thing called the church. And may we not shy away from the responsibility that it has to be a part of it. May we treat it with honor. And may we treat the other pieces involved in this church with respect and grace, knowing that they are a part of your family too. And there's certain ways families should treat each other. Lord, where there is division, may you bring unity. Where there's slander, may you bring an honest conversation to solve it. That has no place in your kingdom. How we treat one another, Lord, you say throughout your scriptures is a picture of how the gospel treats us. You loved us enough to die for us. Greater love have no one that they lay down their life for a friend. And so, Lord, may we put down our petty arguments, our divisive tones, and come together around you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.